This episode is brought to you by Red Bike Delivery. This delivery service operates only using battery-powered, eco-friendly transportation. Red Bike Delivery is there for all your delivery needs, whether it's dinner for the family, flowers for your partner, or new houseplants for your new collection. Red Bike Delivery will gladly deliver those and everything in between. So what are you waiting for? Check out Red Bike Delivery on Facebook or Instagram for more information. Red Bike Delivery, because there's only one Earth. All right, welcome, welcome to, to the Rising Above podcast. My name is David Huss, and today I have Brittany Sanzo with me. She, um, well, first of all, I'm really excited to have her on today. She has a TikTok, and I'd say she's pretty famous on TikTok. She got she has like fifty thousand followers, right? Am I correct? No, it's like half that. But half that twenty five thousand. That's pretty big. Um, anyways. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to have you on to share your story because I've kind of followed your journey a little bit on your TikTok and you talk a lot about um, the, the work you do and you also talk about your experiences in, um, uh, with being adopted and finding your family um, and it's also kind of humorous too because you share your experiences on going on dates and stuff which I found kind of funny. <laughs> so I guess with that being said, how are you doing today, Laura? Uh, Brittany, could you uh, introduce yourself and tell, tell everybody where you're from and whatnot? So my name is Brittany. I am originally from South Jersey around Ocean City area. Um, it's about 10 miles south of Atlantic City. So I grew up there. I was adopted in the same county that I was born in. Um, I went to college in Pennsylvania. And then after I graduated college, I moved to Maryland Worked in Maryland uh, for the past five years, and then I just moved to Arlington, Virginia um, in April, right outside D.C. I live like a mile from the Pentagon. Oh, still wow. work still work in Maryland. Um, it's not as bad of a commute as people think it is. It's only about 25 minutes to my office. But um, the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area is like so much closer than people who are not from this area realize. So Yeah, you tell me that, and I'm like, that seems like a, it would be like, a no, it's not. Not where, um, not where I live, at least. I mean, Virginia is a massive state. It takes like six hours to drive through. But when you're at like the northern Virginia area, it takes like, I mean, it only takes me eight minutes to drive to the capital. So it's, wow. it's not far. How, how do you like living there? I love living here. I think that I, I probably see myself here for the next like five or 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, now, you said you work in, in D.C. Um, what exactly do you do for work? So I work, I actually work in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, okay. which is a suburb of D.C. Um, I do homeless outreach. So pretty much my entire job is driving around different hours of the day. Um, I don't work in like a normal nine to five. I work whenever I want. I have to work one morning shift a week. So anytime between like 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. and one, one night shift a week where I work anytime after 9 to like 1 a.m. And um, I have two other team members and we find people that are sleeping out on the streets, um, engage with them and try to get them connected to services. And then we ultimately house them. Um, now, is there what's the homeless population like in, in D.C. or in Montgomery County? So, um 
I don't know if you are aware, but the eviction moratorium was lifted in October. Um, so right now in the county that I work in, we have 77,000 households that are facing eviction. Um, so obviously that process doesn't happen overnight. Individuals have to go to court. They have to try to access resources through the county. Um, right now our homeless shelters are at full capacity. So we have a lot of people sleeping in cars or on the street um, because we actually expanded our shelters to, we normally only had two, now we have four um, because of COVID, but they're all at max capacity right now. So with more people being evicted and the evictions going through, we're seeing an increase of homeless individuals in this area. That's, That's going to be disheartening to see, right? I mean, because a lot of those people are people that probably do have jobs, but they might be just kind of in, in poverty. They might not make a lot of money. And The other, uh, thing, the just, other thing, too, is um, what a lot of people don't realize is once you get evicted, it is nearly impossible to get accepted by another apartment complex. It doesn't even matter what the eviction is for. If it's COVID related, apartment complexes are just going to see an eviction and they're just going to deny you right off the bat, especially if it's a recent eviction. Right. Um, evictions carry with you in Maryland for, I believe it's eight years. So if you've gotten evicted within the last eight years, you're probably going to be denied an apartment, which leaves people to do room rentals with private landlords, which is just like renting a basement or renting like a room in someone's house, which is hard if you have a family. Right. Um, now, can you explain the, so they put that in place, right, for uh, COVID, right, the, uh, the eviction moratorium? Yeah. Um, can you explain what that is? Because I don't know if a lot of people are aware of that unless you, like, follow that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. So um, during COVID, they, um, Congress enacted a moratorium saying that landlords were not able to evict anyone who was not paying rent due to COVID. Um, so that doesn't mean people didn't have to pay rent. You still needed to pay rent if you were able to, but if you weren't able to, it doesn't mean that like they could evict you. So what happened is a lot of individuals took advantage of the moratorium and they just weren't paying rent. So they told their their landlords or their leasing offices, you know, I lost my job, I can't pay rent, but they were getting unemployment. So what they should have been doing was paying a portion of that to their rent, but a lot of people were not. So if, let's just say even number, say your, your rent is $1,000 a month. Mm -hmm. uh, and now that's added up over a year, that's $12,000 you now owe. But if you had been paying $600 a month, or $500 a month into rent based on what you were getting. Now you might only owe $6,000, which you can probably get help from your county to assist. Now, the eviction moratorium, um, President Biden, he extended it through, it was supposed to be through December. And then there is a union of landlords who went and kind of made a statement to Congress saying, we need to get our money, we need to get paid. And when they all went, they were like, all right, I guess you're right. And they lifted the eviction moratorium. And now everyone who can't pay their back rent is now having to go to court. If they lose their court cases, they will be evicted. Wow. I mean, that's kind of a tough spot to be in, right? Because 
I would like being a home like a, a homeowner. Obviously, you have bills that you need to pay, and if people aren't paying them, then you can't pay it. So that puts you at risk of losing your property as well, right? Yeah. And but then you also have these renters who who are in the same position, who aren't making money or or the same amount of money that they're used to, and so then they're not able to pay their bills, and and then that puts them in a spot to be evicted. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely tricky too, because I mean, I'm, I don't have children. I just have a dog, but you know, <laughs> when you have to kind of decide what prioritize, like what your priorities were in the beginning of COVID when people were getting laid off and not being able to work, um, you know, you have to prioritize what's important. And if they're saying, you know, if you lost your job, rent is not a priority right now, then that's going to go to the back of your mind. And you're going to be like, I need to feed my kids. I need to put effort into, you know, doing Instacart and paying my car payment for gas so that I can make extra money on top of my unemployment. So who knows like what was going on, but, um, especially in like urban areas, cities, DC, New York city, Boston, LA, like all of these evictions are coming and, I don't think that we are prepared as a country, especially with outreach teams like myself. I mean, there's only me and two other people on my team in a county that's going to be facing, you know, over 50,000 families being evicted. I don't think that we're like prepared for it. Um, So we're actually looking to hopefully expand our outreach team by a few people. we can only do so much and we only have so much money from the federal government to like assist so we'll see what happens i don't really know so you said that all the shelters were kind of filled up and that um you were kind of looking at other sources and other means of putting these people in in homes and whatnot is there anything in play to like maybe put them like maybe in a hotel or something until you can find them permanent housing Yeah. So our county, I'm not familiar with what other places are doing. I just know strictly what my county is doing. We actually had hotels um, for vulnerable individuals. So individuals who were higher risk of getting COVID, um, whether they had like severe somatic issues or they were 60 years old and older. So we had, um, we had a bunch of clients that were in hotels The funding is running out for them, though. So we're trying to transition those clients out into permanent stable housing. Um, HUD with uh, HOC, which is the Housing Opportunities Commission, also known as Section 8. um, They have been giving out more vouchers. They've been getting more uh, funding from the federal government as well. So we're trying to transition people that are capable of living on their own. Um, into those type of units with assisted case management going forward so that they don't end up back on the street, evicted again. Um, But then, of course, you have the chronically homeless individuals who are severely mentally ill, um, have substance abuse issues, um, fleeing domestic violence, stuff like that, where you you can't just put them in an apartment and expect them to to do okay. Like you need to have ongoing case management, money management, um, assistance with like helping them manage how to pay their bills, helping them get a job. But um, the country works on a housing first model, which is the model is that you have to house people first before you can do anything else with them. So if somebody is addicted to a substance, it does not matter. We will house them and that now we will work on getting them sober 
because you can put someone in rehab if they're released to the street, they're just going to start using again. Right. So projects can't be made until somebody is put into housing and then you start working on what needs to be worked on. That's, That's crazy. crazy. Um, have, have you ever been homeless? I have not. No, I have. I, I was homeless when I was uh, a kid before I went into foster care. And um, so, I mean, I kind of relate a little bit to some of the things you talk about. Um, I was homeless when I was like nine years old and my mom had uh, three other children that she was looking after. And uh, my, my brother, my younger brother, he was, I think, five, four, four, and my sister was like two. And then my older brother was 10 and I was nine. And... Like, for a nine-year-old, it kind of seemed cool because we were put up in um, to a hotel by the Red Cross, and we're like, oh, this is kind of cool. We're all just hanging out in a, in a hotel room. But but at nighttime, you know, we didn't have food during the day, so we would go down to the homeless shelter here in Lansing, Michigan, and we would eat eat dinner there every night. And I remember standing in line, like, looking around at all these homeless people, and like, wow, you guys, you guys are homeless. <laughs> You're way worse off than we are. We're not really homeless, but, you know, in reality... It, it's, it's a, a sad reality, reality. you know, know we, we were just in just as bad off you know as, as them yeah it's kind of a kind of a crazy thing and then you know so it, it would be difficult to to be a parent i think in these times you know where i guess i guess work is kind of easy to find now because every everybody's looking for people to hire but yeah. at the same time, uh, will it grant you enough money to pay your bills and support your family? And so, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a scary situation, right? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, if you don't have childcare during the day or you can't afford childcare, it's, it makes it a lot harder. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely about to become a booming issue that, and, and what's really, um, upsetting about it is I live in, well, I live in Arlington. I work in one of the wealthiest counties in the country. Montgomery County is just so incredibly rich um, that we'll be on, I'll be on call for my job and people will just call and complain about homeless individuals that they're seeing and not like in a concerning way, more so just like this person is standing outside the grocery store and you need to do something about them. And it's like, they're not doing anything that's harmful or threatening and they have nowhere else to go. Like, what, what do you want me to do? And they're like, well, I need to know what's good. And it's like, well, first of all, because of HIPAA, I cannot tell you <laughs> what we're doing with anyone. Like I respect, like I respect, and I think the fact that you're calling to like report, but if you're just calling to complain, that's not helpful to anyone because that individual is already at the lowest place that they could possibly be in their life to have somebody that just wants to complain about them existing. And I had this lady call me and she was like, you know, back in my day when I lived here, we didn't have homeless people because we just shipped them to the psych ward. Oh. And that's where we would stay, the state hospital. And I was like, oh, that is so incredibly insensitive that you would just say that to a homeless <laughs> outreach social worker who wow. like my whole job is to work with these individuals and like, you know, see past their mental illness and get them housed so that they can like, be functioning in society well not not, not all of them have mental illness you know no. some some people just you know get down on their luck and and then that's where they end up you know yeah. especially with covid right right yeah i mean if you had a good job 
and, and then, then you, you lost, lost that, that job because I've, I've talked to a lot of people on this podcast that have lost their careers over over COVID, and they had to figure something else out. But if you're not that person that can just figure something else out and start a business or go find a, a different job that's just as good, then you know you're just going. You're just going to go down a downward spiral from that point on, more than more than likely. Yeah, and I think that there's so many people that don't realize that they are so much closer to being homeless than they are to being billionaires. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's I'm I mean, I know from my own personal, if I lost my job, I I wouldn't be able to pay next month's rent. You know, there's so many people that live paycheck to paycheck and especially in an area that's so wealthy and everything is so expensive, you know, in my area, one bedroom apartments are $1500. Wow. That's, that's more than my house payment. payment. <laughs> yeah. And that's just that's for crazy. like, you know, a 700 square foot apartment, you're paying that much. So I can't even, it's definitely a frustration for me to see. And that's why I think that continuing education is so incredibly important because, you know, it could really, really happen to anyone. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Now, now what, what led you to wanting to start your TikTok, TikTok account? Um, <laughs> So I actually started it. I was never a TikTok person until COVID <laughs> oh, when geez. I was working from home and I was bored. Um, and I started posting videos of my dog and it was like really harmless, right? Um, and then I started learning how TikTok operates. And I'm like, oh, people do stitches, which, you know, if you're not familiar with TikTok or anyone who's listening, a stitch is like, there's a video, I'm holding a lighter. Um, there's video and then you kind of, cut the part of the video and then once it's done you continue on with like finishing what that video started so i saw um a tiktok and it was like tell a tell a time about a job where you something happened and you quit on the spot like immediately and i was like oh my gosh like the time that i worked in human trafficking so i made i made the first tiktok and it's a pretty lengthy story. So I only, and I only had like 20 followers, right? I wasn't, um, I wasn't like booming on TikTok. So I made the first video and I was like, do I really feel like continuing this story? So I made the first one and I didn't make a follow up, whatever. I went to go take a shower and I ate dinner and I went to the gym and I came back and I opened up TikTok and I had like 6,000 likes and like all these comments and people were like, where's the part two? Where's the part two? So I was like, oh my God, like what is happening? <laughs> so I continued to make the story and it just completely blew up. And I feel like people, that was my first ever social work job out of college. I worked in Baltimore, West Baltimore, which is not a good area of Baltimore. <laughs> and I worked at a safe house for human trafficking survivors. So um, the TikTok I basically talked about, it was like three or four days before Christmas. Um, and one of our women had run away from the safe house and it was like a probably like nine or 10 o'clock at night and a bunch of traffickers came to the house and were trying to break in. And what I figured had happened was the, the woman had ran away back to her trafficker, told him where she was staying and he sent a bunch of people to the house. Now I was 22. <laughs> So, and I was on shift by myself with a house of five women and a six month old baby. And my boss was on a flight to Texas for Christmas and there was like no one for me to call. 
And Baltimore historically has um, a very high crime rate and a low police force. So they don't have enough officers to like combat the amount of calls that they get. So when I called and I was panicking, and of course I'm trying to keep my composure with a bunch of women who are scared for their life, who have already been through trafficking trauma, um, the police didn't even show up for like 35 minutes after I called. And I had girls that were in the house talking about how they were going to fight off these men. And they were around the whole house, just like there were three different entrances to the house. They were surrounding the whole house. It was so terrifying. And after that, I was like, I'm going to burn out of this career before I even start. So like right after that, I put in my resignation and I was like, I cannot work here anymore. So when I talked about that, it blew up because people, especially young women, are fascinated by trafficking because it's such a real thing. And hearing like I, I read so many of the comments and people were like, oh, I live in Baltimore, like I live in Baltimore County, like this doesn't even surprise me that the police took so long. Like, this is so scary. I know like West Baltimore. So it was really interesting to see how far the audience reached because there were people that were like, well, in South Africa where I live, like the police won't get there for an hour and a half. And I was like, Oh my God, people in South Africa are looking at this video. Like that's so (laughs) crazy. But that's, that's really like where things blew up. And I had um, a lot of people ask for like other videos of like signs of, trafficking and how to look out for things and what tactics traffickers are using. So it really opened up like a big conversation of something that's super scary to talk about. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the, the video, video that I've seen. seen. And I was like, like you know, what? She, this, this, this sounds, sounds really interesting. interesting. I need to have her on the podcast. And I think that was like months ago that I, I commented on that video. Um, but I'm glad that we're finally able to talk and whatnot. Um, now, now, what, what got, got you into social work and what made you want to work in the human trafficking department or like a, like a field? Human trafficking field? Yeah. So yeah. Um, I actually, so as you know, I am adopted. I grew up in foster care. Um, I was adopted when I was, I was almost seven. So I was in and out of foster care, living back and forth with my biological parents. Um, they would lose custody. I would end up in foster care. They would get custody back. We were living in motels and then they would lose custody, go back to foster mm-hmm. care. So it was this like vicious cycle. And, um, eventually my, my biological parents lost their parental rights and I became property of the state. Um, and my adoptive mom was my kindergarten teacher. Can I, can I stop you there? Mm-hmm. What, what was your, your experience, experience like, like in the foster, foster care system? system? Trash. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you've seen my episode where I talk about my my experience in the foster care system, but it, yeah, same same thing. It's trash. Um, it's trash. But you know, there's some people that have really good experiences. So I was just curious what yours was, and why would why would you say that? Um. So my um my foster mom, one of my foster moms, because I went through a couple different homes. The one I was with the longest. Um. Of course, you know, I respect people who take in foster children. I think that, you know, we need more foster parents, but we need more foster parents that care. And I feel as though my foster mom that I had um, really was doing it for the check that she would get every month from the state. Uh, The way that the house was set up, all of the foster kids slept in the basement 
there was rooms in the basement and every room had, there were three rooms and every room had three bunk beds. So there was a room for the teenagers and then like a room for the girls and a room for the boys. And then whoever would come in, you would just get like a bed. And then like her kids that she had actually lived upstairs. So they had their own rooms, but all that. So it was very like, (laughs) and you didn't really feel like you were part of the family. And especially at such a young age, you know, your developmental years are the age of zero to six. So like, not not receiving the attention that you needed at that young age really impacts how you grow up mm-hmm. and the way that your brain functions and stuff like that. So I can't trash every every foster family. I don't know every foster family. I have seen TikToks of foster parents who, you know, are going above and beyond. And like that makes me really happy because if that was me, I would have really appreciated that. But my own personal experience was that it was trash. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's uh, I, mean, I mean, a lot, lot of people has, have, have that experience. experience. And, and I think it, I think it's because a lot of people do it for the money. And um, and, and, then, that, and that, I think that was kind of the case for me, too. Uh, my, my parents did it for, I don't want to say that. I shouldn't say that. I still have a relationship with my dad. But, you know, I think I think a good portion of it is about the money. And it's unfortunate to see. Now, now, I don't know if you guys have this in your state, state but in Michigan, they always run ads, and it drives me insane. They have ads on the radio. Anybody can be a foster parent. It doesn't take somebody special. Oh, <laughs> Just, no. Yeah, they have these ads, and it they drive me absolutely insane because I'm like, no, not anybody can just be a foster parent. You should not advertise that. No. Because that's how you get the wrong people to do it. Yep. Yeah. So, but... um. So going back to the initial question of how I got into social work, I had, um, no, it's okay. So I had a really great social worker, Miss Jackie, and she was, you know, like I said, at the time I was really young. I was, this was between the ages of like four and six. So she was the one who would pick me up for visitations. Um, after visitation, she would always take me out to eat, which probably, I mean, I'm a social worker now and I know she was paying with her own money. Like, just like just knowing how things are now with me being in this field, like she she did a, like above and beyond what she needed to do. And once I got to high school and I like started thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, I was like, oh, I want to do what Miss Jackie did. Like I want to be that person that somebody looks back on 20 years from now and is like that person changed my life. So I went to school for social work and I initially went in like, I'm going to work in child welfare. And as I got into my social work um, classes and degree, I was like, I honestly don't know if I'll be able to separate my own trauma to be able to effectively help people in this field. Because I took a child welfare class and I would just get like heated about things that we would talk about. And I was like, I don't think I can separate myself. Like, I don't think I'm there yet. And that's not helpful as a social worker to like constantly be in like self-disclosure mode or, you know, not be able to separate yourself to be able to focus on what you need to do, which is help the client. So um, the way that my department was set up is you had to do, I think it was like 60 hours of volunteer work over your um, four years in the program. 
but all of the volunteer work had to be with different populations. So you could work with people in like the disability club. Um, they had one of those on campus or um, people in the nursing home or they always did homeless events. And I always like, my first time doing the homeless uh, event that they had in Harrisburg, I was like, this is, this is what I'm gonna do. Like, I actually felt like I was doing something. Like I was helping people get connected to resources. Like I felt like I was actually just like helping someone. So my senior year, we did an internship and I asked my advisor, I want to do my internship with homeless services. And the homeless service provider in the area was at Salvation Army. So I did my internship with the Salvation Army. And then when I graduated college, um, there was a job with Salvation Army in Baltimore, which is the trafficking job. So while it was a completely different field, it was the same organization that I had already been with for six months. So they hired me immediately because I already was within the organization. And that's how I got involved in trafficking, even though it was something completely new to me. I had like I had taken a class in college on um, domestic violence, sexual assault and trafficking. So I had like knowledge of like a semester course, but no like field experience. And it was really hard. It was it was the hardest field I've ever worked in. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine because, because that's, that's one of those crimes that, like, you can't take back, back right? Like, like mm-hmm. once you assault somebody in that kind of way, it sticks with them forever. And yeah. it kind of defines who they are as a person. You know, I was telling my wife that, like, like, like rape, for instance. It's like one of those crimes that you can't take back. Once you do that to somebody, it it affects them for a lifetime. Like, if you, if you hit somebody, they'll get over it. You know, you know, they'll, they'll, like, they'll forget, forget that, that you hit them, them or they'll, they'll forgive you for that. that. But when you sexually assault somebody, that's not something that's forgivable, right? Yeah. Um, now, how bad is human trafficking? Because when, when people think about human trafficking, they think about, uh, like, maybe this huge, this huge, like, enterprise and how it's, like, this, it's this, um... I don't know, they, they, they kind of think of like mobsters in, in a sense, right? They, it's, it's like this huge underground network type thing, but it's not necessarily the case, case right? So it's it's so complex. Um, all right, so I'll <laughs> I'll share a little bit of one of the, the stories that I heard of one of the women I worked with. Um, so she had decided she was from Maryland and she decided to move to Tennessee with one of her friends. Um, just to get away and like start somewhere new and, you know, meet new people, whatever. So they moved to Tennessee and they have hardly any money and they are living in a hotel. They're looking for jobs and they're like, oh, when we get jobs, we'll move out of the hotel and we'll get an apartment together. So they see one of those signs that are like cleaners wanted, no experience needed, whatever. So they call the number and they get hired. So they start working for this cleaning company and um, one of the, like the head lady, the head cleaner was like, all of us live in a house together. If it would be cheaper for you guys, you can move in with us and you can have one of these rooms. And they were like, oh, that would be great. Like cheap rent, we can live together, whatever. So they were like, okay, yeah, the guy who owns the cleaning company owns the house and they didn't really think anything of it. So they move in and they meet the guy who the land, they meet the landlord. 
So the landlord starts acting very weird. Um, he comes into their room one night and he tries to sleep in their bed with them. And they were like, no, we don't like this. Like, get out of our room. So they tried to move him out and he hit one of them. And he was like, no, no, this is not how this works. And he tied the one girl to a chair and he made the other girl watch him just beat the crap out of her as like an intimidation thing. So they were like, okay, like we got to get out of here. Like this is not, so it turns out that, um, I don't know what, a, so the proper term and excuse my language, but the, the, proper term, the proper term for this is, um, so the head cleaning lady was the bottom bitch. So in trafficking, that person is the person who finds girls for the trafficker. Um, she's the most abused of all of the women. She takes the hardest. She's the one who controls all the money when the trafficker's not around. So um, the guy who owned the house got wind that these two girls were going to try to leave. So he went in and he drugged them and drove them from Tennessee to Washington State. He then locked them in a basement in Washington state and would sell them to police officers in Montana, which I think is the state that's next to Washington state. So he would drive them across state borders and they would be raped by police officers in Montana. And one of the girls got pregnant and um, she miscarried the baby because of all of the, um, the abuse that she was facing and when she miscarried, the trafficker murdered her in front of the client that I worked with. And the client watched all of this happen. So it's more than just like the selling and trading of humans. It's like the coercion, like the coercion, the the abuse, the, you know, the psychological trauma. And the day that the traffickers came to the house I worked at, and I called the police. The one girl would not come out of the room. She was terrified of the police because she had so much trauma associated with the police from when her trafficker and she, and like she, the way that she got away is that she did everything the trafficker asked her to do and completely just earned his entire trust. And she asked him if she could go, go to like the grocery store to buy tampons. And when she left, she got on a bus and like, just left and she like had no phone. She left her phone. She left everything. Like she didn't have a credit card. She had no money and she just had someone buy her a bus ticket and she left and came back. And, um, she, when she came back to Maryland, she reported it and that's how we got, we got her through the FBI. Um, but that's like, it's, it's why, like the stories I would hear from, and that's just like one of the many stories. That gave me chills. I have my, my hairs on my arm is standing up right now. now. It's, it was like that's scary. It's so scary, and it's like, and that girl was like nineteen when that happened. Wow. Yeah. And it's all because you know she thought that she could trust someone to like help her. And I made a video about like, like those signs of like, oh, like tutors wanted after school tutors, like eighteen dollars an hour, and there's just a phone number with no other information that's a trap or like cleaning services with a phone number, no other information. It's a trap. So like, I think that it's important to bring awareness to that because the, like that girl did nothing. She did nothing wrong to be put in that situation besides just being ignorant to what was going on around her. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, that's not really, 
she's, she's just trying to better her life, life right? She she wanted to start. She wanted to work, and she wanted a place that was cheap to live, and somebody took complete advantage of that. Yeah, that is scary. It is. It's really scary. So. I think that like I was able to use the 25,000 followers that I had on TikTok to at least like share some of the things that I was made aware of by talking to the clients I worked with mm-hmm. that just like, uh, like dating apps. There was one dating app that two of the women I worked with got trafficked through plenty of fish. And it's like, I was like, do not use that dating app. Like do not go on that dating app. Why, Why specifically that dating app? app? I don't, I'm not exactly sure. I don't think it's monitored as heavy, like as heavy as like Tinder and Hinge and Bumble are. I think that um, like from personal experience and like knowing from my friends, like if you report someone on Bumble, like for weird behavior, Bumble deactivates their account. Mm. Like you don't play like that. But I don't think that Plenty of Fish has like the same like security with it. Um, so that was, that was one of the big ones. And I don't know, it's just, it's really scary. So I was trying to just like educate like young women, especially like teenage girls, because that's, it's just, you, it can happen to anyone in like any circumstance where you are not paying attention to what's going on around you. Now, um, human human trafficking trafficking is kind of a big thing that I've seen a lot of videos on like like Facebook, uh, specifically here in Michigan, because Lansing is kind of like in between Detroit and Chicago. And so I've seen a lot of videos where people have posted that people like wait for women in parking lots at stores and they'll pull them into a vehicle and then that's a way to traffic them. Have you heard many stories like that? Um, yeah, I have, especially where I'm from in South Jersey, I've seen a lot of that where, um, women will be getting out at like a target at nighttime and they'll just like notice a vehicle will just pull up, like not right next to them, but a couple spots down. And then like, they'll walk into the store and then feel like someone's following them and they'll see like somebody is just following them around the store. Mm-hmm. And then like, um, They'll have like the cashier be like, that person's been watching you, like following you around. So that's another like targets. I actually made a, I made a TikTok about, I got followed from a gas station to a target and someone came up to me behind like that gut feeling. And I don't play because I worked in this field. So I know not to like, but somebody at a gas station followed me from Maryland into DC over state lines and came in and I got like a weird feeling and I turned around and it was the man from the gas station, like in Maryland. And he was like, me and my friend think you're really beautiful. And I started screaming and like, they got, <laughs> you know, you have to make a scene. Yeah. You have to get people's attention to what's going on. And they like quick ran away and the manager got their license plate number and made a police report. Wow. Wow. So that's, that's one. And also like one of the main, are you familiar with, um, I 81? No, no, I'm not. So interstate 81 goes from Nashville to Canada. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. Up New York. It's a non toll road. So truckers use that road like quite frequently. And, um, that's like a main road. People will get trafficked from like anywhere along the East coast along I 81 because, they're not like going through tolls, not going through like um, way stations or anything like that. 
it's, it's kind of concerning, concerning that you, you had mentioned, mentioned um, how that, that, that one lady you worked with uh, was repeatedly raped by police officers and, and how deep that goes into our infrastructures. Yeah. And then, and then, then finding, finding out, of course, like, like you know, a couple years ago with like Jeffrey Epstein and how that, that, all that, and how, you, you know, unraveled and, and that's a part of our, our, our government system and our political system. It's, it's concerning. It's disgusting. It is, it is, it is disgusting. disgusting. It's disgusting. Um, and, you know, people aren't taken seriously. I mean, even if you look at like Matt Gates, like actual like evidence came out that he was soliciting young girls and he still holds office. Who's, Who's Matt Gates? Um, he's one of the representatives in Florida. Oh, and it came out that he was soliciting like 14 and 15 year old girls, dudes like 40. And he was like having them come to his like estate and like meet. And it's like, how are, how is that not an automatic you are in jail? Like, right. because when it comes down to it, those, those girls, those girls aren't going to realize it now, but that like the trauma of that is going to impact them when they get into their late teens, early twenties. And then it's going to start like impacting how they behave with relationships. And, you know, it's just, it messes people up. Yeah, yeah it really does. does. It may, it, may seem, it may seem like something that's kind of fun now. now. I mean, because you, you may not be aware that you're being trafficked, trafficked right? right? Like, like if you have somebody who is buying you things and treating you real nice and, you know, letting you live this lavish lifestyle, but you don't really realize that I have to do it, you know, I pay for it with sex or, you know, with whatever. Later on, that's going to affect you. Yeah, for sure. So... You left, you left that, that field because, because obviously that's too much, much to bear. <laughs> it was a... so scary. I, I mean, I'm from like a pretty conservative like town in New Jersey, like very small town, ten thousand people. Like everyone knows everyone. Everyone like. You don't, you don't I, have an accent for being, for being from New Jersey. Jersey. I don't. I'm from South Jersey. I don't have an accent. <laughs> <laughs> but um. Can you, can you do, do one? one? Do you know, do you know how, how to do, do one? one? No. <laughs> I feel like you do and you're just you're lying. I don't know how to do one. But um it's different if you grow up in like a very like if I were to grow up in DC, I'm sure it wouldn't have been so scary for me because I would have been like um familiar with being around like thousands of people and like I'm always on guard and you know, kids in this area they walk to school a couple blocks on their own, they're like six, you know. Right. But where I grew up, it was so sheltered. And then I started that job and I called my mom that night. Um, I had to be escorted to the highway by state troopers. And I called my mom and I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Like I need to resign. And she was like, you need to do whatever is best for your mental health. And I was like, I don't have a job. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And my mom was like, we will help you until you figure out what you're doing. Like, but I don't, my mom was like, I would rather pay your rent for two months while you look for a job than have you get kidnapped and trafficked. And I was like, thank you. I will gladly take you up on that offer. <laughs> now this, this is your adopted, adopted family, family, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. That, that is, that is truly amazing. amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so I don't, I don't think, think we finished that story a little bit. Could you go back and tell us about, about um, like you said you were adopted, I think at seven, right? I was almost seven. Yeah. You were almost seven. Okay. And what was that like? So, um, 
it's it's been a journey uh i think that the more that i have like learned about adoption and gone to therapy i have learned so much about why i am the way i am as a person um which sounds it sounds so ridiculous but sorry my dog is like maria stop it <laughs> you're, you're, you're good um so my my biological parents um like i said i was born and adopted in the same county so i'm not like an international adoptee i wasn't i'm from the same area and my both of my biological parents suffered with drug addiction um alcohol and drugs which is why they constantly lost and regained custody it would be like all right you messed up get clean get sober go to rehab you can get your kid back they'd get me back they'd start using again they would fight they would so it was a mess um so when i was adopted i was in this really weird like I was so young, but I understood enough of what was going on to have feelings about it. So my mom would say, oh, Miss Jackie, my social worker, said that your mom is asking for pictures of you. Is it okay if I send her some pictures? And I would be like, no, I don't want you sending her any pictures. If she wanted to see me, she would have made the time to see me. Like, I was very angry. Um, and I lived with this anger for a very long time. I wanted nothing to do with anything. Um, and my, my mom would constantly bring it up and be like, if you ever want to like contact your biological family, just let your father and I know we will work with you. We will like be there to support you. No, no, no. I don't ever want to meet them. I don't ever want to talk to them. Like how could they choose drugs over me? Blah, blah, blah. So I was in this like really um, like tough, just did not want any communication with them whatsoever. So every once in a while, I knew their names, you know, like I lived with them on and off for a couple years. So I knew their names and every once in a while I would try to Google them to see like, I don't know if I could find anything. Mm -hmm. so beginning of 2019, I Googled my mom's name, my biological mom's name. And I found a GoFundMe page for, for a funeral fund and she had died. Oh, and um, it just kind of like hit me like, Oh my God. Like I will never have the chance to reach out to her if I want to, like if I ever got to that point and I was like, I want to reach out and be like, look how far I made it without you. I don't get the chance to. And that was like really upsetting for me. And I texted my mom and I sent her a picture of the, of the GoFundMe. And I said, does this look like Sue? I think this is my mom. And my mom was like, I don't know. Like she, she got really weird about it, which was weird to me because I was just like, why are you acting so weird about this? Like I just found out this information. So the whole situation caused a major, major, major blowout between me and my adoptive parents. And um, my mom was very upset in a sense of like, Oh, so let me back up for a second. I, when I found that GoFundMe page, I emailed the person who started the GoFundMe immediately because I was like, you know, it was such a weird, quick reaction to something that I saw. And I was like, I need to know if this is like my mom. I emailed the person. I was like, hi, um, I just wanted to get some more information about this GoFundMe page. And within like 10 minutes, I got a response email and it was like, hi, like my name is Laura. Um, Sue was my aunt and she recently passed away. Um, so we're raising money for her funeral. And I was like, do you know if Sue had a daughter named Brittany? Because if so, I think I'm her daughter. 
And I got this like long email and it was like, oh my God, like we have been looking for you for 18 years. Like we thought your last name was something different. We haven't been able to find you. Sue was really sick near the end and so badly wanted to contact you and like talk to you before she died and all this stuff. So I'm just like a whirlwind of emotion and I'm like, crying because now I feel guilty and like I should have done something and so I'm talking to my mom about this and she feels like I think she felt a sense of betrayal in like I've been telling you for so long that I will be a part of this when you decide and you just went ahead and did it without me and I think that she felt some type of way about that which looking back on it I understand like at the time I was so angry. I was like, this isn't about you. This is about me. Like, why are you making it about yourself? So, um, there was a bunch of other things that happened in between, but I think in the year 2019, my parents and I did not speak for probably six or seven months. Um, I was processing a lot on my own. I had never been to therapy before. I started going to therapy twice a week and I would just cry like every time I went to therapy because I just felt like I, I was so confused. Like, I felt guilty. I felt shame. I felt lost. Like I, I just didn't even know how to feel. So, um, it took a really long time of healing with my adoptive parents to get to a point where we understood each other because I was like, I started using terms more of like my biological parents and my adoptive parents. And my dad didn't like that. He was like, we are your parents. And I was like, you are, but you are my adoptive parents. Like I have a whole other side of biological family and like I'm trying to discover this on my own and because you guys aren't supporting me with doing this. So I actually started an adoptee Instagram page to connect with other people who were adopted because I grew up not knowing any other adoptees. And that page has grown like immensely. What, what, um, what, what is that page? It's um, adoptee talks, just one word. Okay. Um, and it's a lot about like, like I said, I've learned a lot because I had, kind of shut off so much of my adoption my whole life. Um, I've learned a lot of different terms and like things. So coming out of the fog is a big one. That's when adoptees realize that adoption is not all great. And there's a lot of trauma that comes from being adopted. Um, granted, my adoptive parents are fantastic, but I have a lot of trauma that stems from my adoption, whether it's abandonment trauma, fear of like attachment issues, um, well, it's, it's, a, it's you, you taking on a whole nother life, life, right? right? Like yeah. You go, you go from, from one, one, one aspect, aspect I, and I can speak to this because I also, because too, was adopted and I was in foster care. care. You know, you know you're, you're, you're in one situation, situation and then you're immediately taken away from that situation and put into another situation. And then you're the one who's forced to adapt to it. Yeah. And you're you're a kid. You don't know how to do that. Like, you're supposed to look at these people who are supposed to be your parents and and, and recognize, recognize, you know, these are now my authority figures, figures and they're, they're supposed, supposed to be my parents. It's, yeah. it's very, it's very difficult. And you, you have to go, go like, like make new friends and you change, change locations on where you live. live. Like for, for me, uh, that, was that was difficult for me because, because um, I was nine years old and I was taken away from my mom and I was extremely close to her. And then, you know, we when we were put in foster care, we moved to a different city. Um, you know, and put into a different school system. And then, of course, other kids are asking you, like, hey, where are you from? Like, why are you here? What's your name? You know, and then you got to explain the whole situation to them. And you're kind of looked at as like an outcast. You know, like, I'm just an outsider. 
because, because you like, don't all kids you, know they all know that you're adopted they all know that like yeah. it's not even part of your identity that like you get to disclose it's like everyone just knows yeah yeah and then you grow up hearing and i'm sure that you've heard this too because i think every adoptee has heard this like you're so lucky you should, <laughs> you're so you should be so grateful and it's like i'm so lucky how like i was taken away from my biological family like you don't tell kids that were born into their families with their biological parents you're so lucky right. like, and and then you just harbor this this guilt of like well why don't i feel happy like i don't feel like i'm lucky i miss like you know i and whatever the circumstance is i mean it's different for kids who are adopted at birth but like there's still separation trauma when you are growing inside someone for nine months and you become, you form that bond and then you're immediately taken and given to someone else. Like there's, mm -hmm. that's trauma right there. And I had a conversation with my mom probably three or four months ago. And she was like, I really hate when you say that adoption is trauma. And I was like, but it is. And she was like, well, it makes me feel like I did something wrong. And I was like, it's not like that. It's like, it's like an umbrella term. So you have like, Adoption is trauma, but the trauma is abandonment issues, trouble having meaningful relationships with people, self-sabotage, people-pleasing behaviors, like mm -hmm. anxiety, depression, all of like, you know, um, imposter syndrome. It's like all of these things where you feel that you need to like hypercompensate to like live up to expectations because you felt like you weren't good enough for your biological parents. So now I have to be the perfect child so that you don't give me away again. Or like, you know, it's, it's a whole thing that people really don't understand because the media just portrays adoption as like it's such a great, thing. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's definitely, definitely portrayed as like this glamorous, um, like heroic, heroic thing, thing to do, to adopt kids. kids. And, you know, you know, in, 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 in ways it is, you know, because you're, you're allowing these children to come into your homes that are, you know, unfortunate and they're maybe homeless or they were in like abusive situations, which was kind of the case for me. Um, you know, you're, you're definitely helping somebody out, but at the same time, it, it, they have their own issues to deal with and it's not necessarily looked at as like a great thing, you know. And, and those those, those things, things I don't think are really talked about. No, they, they, they just kind of expect you to adapt to it. I've learned that so much within like the adoptee Instagram page that I started because I'm going to join so that by the way. What's that? I'm, I'm, I'm going, going to join, to join that. that. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. I have connected with so many people. I'm actually um getting together with a group of adoptees in this area next weekend. We're gonna we're gonna like meet in person. Um, but learning about like transracial adoptees, I'm not a transracial adoptee, but like, that's a whole different level of trauma of like black, like black kids that are adopted into white families and like whitewashed and their whole culture is like erased. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I've, I've talked with a lot of transracial adoptees who are like, what were my parents' intentions on adopting a black kid? Like, did they want to have like the white savior complex of like, like <laughs> oh, I'm adopting like a poor black kid. And it's like, you know, there are a lot of people who do that for like the publicity of it almost of like, oh, you're such a good person. You saved this like little child who, 
wouldn't have had the same opportunities. But it's like, who who are you to say that that child would not have had those opportunities? Because right. they, they very may well have. So yeah, I guess, it's I guess, a very interesting. I guess, I guess technically, technically I would be, would be a, uh, what would you, would you call it, transracial trans adoptee? adoptee. Um, because, because I'm part, part Honduran, and, and uh, but, but the, the thing, thing is, is, is so my older brother and I are part Honduran uh, because, because we have the same dad, same mom. mom. But, then but then my, my other siblings, siblings have different dads, dads. And, and so, so um, you know, you know they're, they're they're obviously not Caucasian. Yeah. And uh, my, my younger brother, brother he's Caucasian, Caucasian, and he was placed in the same foster home I was placed in. We were adopted in that home together. So I guess technically I'm like. By right, like it was a biracial adoption, but the thing is, is like, I didn't really know much about my culture or my dad's side of the culture to real to have it really affect my life going into it, you know? Yeah. So I think that happens a lot because I've seen. um So I have this one friend that I met. He lives in Annapolis, and we've like met before, um and he is. Uh, he was adopted from Guatemala mm-hmm. and into a white family and his family never ever discussed his um, like Hispanic culture. And he had to explore it on his own when he was like, you know, 18, 19. And he was like, wait a second, like, why am I not like, and, and he would be like, Oh, like I never brought it up when I was in school because I just was in a school with all white kids and I didn't want to be different. And he's like, but that's a huge part of like who I am and I need to like learn about it. So now he's starting to like try like Guatemalan foods and all of this stuff. (laughs) And there's actually a couple different Instagram pages for like South American adoptees. That's all like people who are from like cultures of South, like South America. And they have like their own like support groups where you can like, talk about things and it's really cool the the community itself is so just broad such a broad yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot, lot of different, different ethnicities and, and um i guess religions and all kinds of different, different uh, yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's very like i don't know it's, it's versatile i guess yeah for sure just throws up oh, oh there, there we go, go. um, um so, so what is, what is your relationship, relationship now? now? Like, like, like with your, do you have a relationship with your, uh, your biological family? Did you, I know you posted videos on TikTok about finding them. Yeah. So I actually, so my cousin, Laura, um, that I messaged to started that GoFundMe page. Um, it's so weird. So I never had any pictures of myself when I was younger. All my pictures just started like when, when I moved in with my adoptive family. <laughs> um, and when I messaged her and I was emailing back and forth, she sent me like a plethora of photos um, of like us together. And I was like, she was like, I haven't seen you in like 20 years. She's like, but here's pictures of us when you were like living with us at the time, which I don't remember like living with them. Um, but apparently my aunt, which is Laura's mom, tried to adopt me. Um, but she li- she was living in West Virginia at the time and her husband had a felony charge from like the seventies and child protective services was like, sorry, like your husband has a felony charge. We can't allow an adoption to go through. So I was kind of like, they were like the last family members that would have been able to like agree to take me in. Um, which is then why I became property of the state, but I did meet them in June. It took me two and a half years to get up the courage to be like, I think I'm finally ready to meet you. We talked very regularly. The conversations were um, 
you know, very normal. I felt like I, I didn't go into the meeting not knowing what to expect because I had been talking to them for like an extended period of time. What was really helpful is that um, Shirley, which is my aunt, she gave me so much medical information that I did not have. That's another thing people don't realize. Adopted individuals usually don't have access to medical records yeah. or the original birth certificate. So birth certificates are changed after an adoption. Um, my birth certificate says that my adoptive parents are my biological parents, which is not true. Same, Same here. Um, yeah. And it's like, if you even try to access your original birth certificate, they're like, Why? you don't exist. You don't exist as that previous person. Like that person, you get a whole new social security number. Like who you were prior does not like does not exist. Yeah, yeah, that's um, um that's a that's huge, a huge thing, thing, right? Because when, when I, I that's, that's the thing, thing. I, I've, I've never, never, I never, I never knew any of my medical information, information. And, and so my wife actually bought me twenty three and me because I was like, I want to know like more about my my health. I'm like kind of health conscious and want to know like what what kind of diseases I could get, like if I'm susceptible to getting like diabetes or you know whatever so she bought this for me and then, and then actually, actually through that, that i was able to find my dad like i actually found my, my first cousin second cousin and then they helped me find my dad who i hadn't seen since i was two years old and uh yeah so it's kind of crazy and then obviously i had access to all my health information so yeah people um the ancestry my brother got me um an ancestry kit for my college graduation because he knew that i was really like interested in learning about like where i came from and stuff like that and this was before i came in contact with biological family, but, um, health records are a huge thing because, you know, it's so, it's so awful when you go to the doctor and they're like, do you have any family history of cancer? And you're like, I don't know, I'm adopted. And then the doctor just stares at you like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks. I just, it's, I don't know what to tell you. And then they're like, all right, well then we have to do a full blood test panel because you don't know. And it's like, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's great. So um, Shirley was able to give me a lot of my maternal side's health history, which I didn't have. Um, and, you know, you get to an age, I mean, I'm 26. So you get to a point where you're like, I kind of need this information because what if I like, what if someone in my family had breast cancer? What if someone and I found out my biological mom had MS, you know, mm -hmm. signs of MS in like, it's very normal for women who have MS to pass it on to their daughters and signs of MS start showing by the time you're 25. So I was like, I need to start paying attention to that. Like, had I not known that if there's like preventatives that I can take, I should probably start doing them now. So I, I really think that there needs to be a lot of reform when it comes to adoption with like, if you're giving your child up for adopt or place, placing your child for adoption. I don't like the term giving, but it's not really, if you're placing your child for adoption or, you know, the state is like, you don't have parental rights. You should be required to like provide health information to a social worker that will then pass that on to the adoptive family or if you're in foster care, give it to the child so that they have that information. But, but the, thing the thing is, is a lot of, a lot of people, people who lose their children to the, to the system don't necessarily have, have, have those resources, right? right? Like they may not, not be able to have access to go to, to, go to the doctor and then find out like what, what, what kind of what things that, that they, they, they have, like if they, they you, know, you know, like are susceptible to having diabetes or, you know. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like there should be like reform with it where it's like, okay, if you, so for example, like either of our, biological moms where you become you know you, you go into the system 
there's obviously a social worker involved, whether it's CPS, a CPS social worker or just family services social worker that is like, I'm going to take you to the doctor and I'm also going to work with you as well as the child because it's a family unit right now and we need to do what's best for the child. But that's not the case when it really should be the case because then you have a bunch of, you know, adults walking around not knowing like, I could have a heart attack any minute. (laughs) I have no idea, you know? Right. Right. It's not fair. fair. Right. Right. Um, What what do you think could be done done about that? that? I mean, obviously you said some reform. There is some current legislation that's um, in the house right now. Um, Some bills that are supposed to be passed about original birth certificates um, and about there is a um, adoptee citizen act. Um, That's another thing people don't realize children who are adopted usually from Asia are adopted without the proper paperwork to become citizens and then they're 18 and they get pulled over and get deported to what? a country they've never been to. Wow. So that's another thing um, that is in the House right now trying to be passed the Adoptee Citizenship Act, stating that if a child is adopted from overseas, they are granted automatic citizenship. Um, a lot of times adoption agencies like don't realize that and they skip over that part. And adoptive parents don't know because how would you know? Right. Because, right. You know? I'm adopting a kid. They're just going to be my kid and have citizenship. Um, But there's been a couple different um, situations where, you know, people are like 45 or 50 and something happens. They get involved with the, with the law and they get deported and have whole families. Like they're married and have kids and have no idea that they are walking around without citizenship until they are deported back to Korea where they've never been before. So that's, that's, that's another piece of legislation that's, that's trying to be passed right now as well. That's madness. That's madness. Yeah. That would, that would be so crazy. crazy. Can imagine, Can imagine that. that. And I've learned all of this through my adoption page. I would have never known otherwise. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is crazy. Yeah. Everybody yeah, go check out her adoption page, page and, and also, also her TikTok. TikTok. Her, TikTok's her TikTok's kind of funny. Ridiculous dates. Yeah, yeah, that, that I, I, just I just watched, watched one of your videos, videos uh, yesterday, not yesterday, yesterday, the day before, and you were, and you were talking about, about how um, one, of one of your dates had posted on social media about what was the worst date you ever went on, and you were like, oh, the date where you didn't buy me food, but you bought yourself food. So you know what's funny is I'm dating that guy now. Oh, oh my gosh, gosh. that's, that's funny. funny. So actually, um, after I sent him that, so we had gone out on like four or five dates and everything was going well until that date where he came over and like bought food just for himself. And I'm get, I get really awkward in situations like that. Um, <laughs> so a couple months had passed and when he posted that on his Instagram story, I was like, ah, now is my time. Like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna send the message. And he responded and was like, oh my gosh, like my bad. Like, let me make it up to you and take you out. And I was like, oh, whatever, free meal, right? That was like <laughs> in my head. I was All my friends were like, just go and get like free dinner. And I went and it went really well. And we've hung out like two or three times a week for the past like three months. Wow. wow. So he really That's redeemed awesome. himself. He really did. That, that is, is funny. funny. Did, did he explain why he did, why he did that? that? He was like, I probably just wasn't, I was in my room on a work call and he was like, I think that I was just watching TV and like ordering food and like, wasn't <laughs> processed in the fact that you were still here. <laughs> I was like, and knowing him now as a person, I'm like, that definitely makes sense. Like, I can see you doing that. Oh, oh that's funny. funny. That is, that is hilarious. hilarious. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was, I was, I was watching, watching that at work, work and I was like, oh my gosh, gosh that, that is so funny. funny. Yeah. Wow. Um, um so, so, 
obviously, obviously you, you have, have some feelings towards the foster, foster care system, system. and I think, I think it's really cool that you work in social service field. What would you like to see change? I mean, I mean obviously, obviously that's, that's a pretty broad, broad question. In what sense? In what field? In the foster care field, specifically in foster care. What kind of things would you like to see different? Um, I think that there needs to be stricter, um, like, not background checks, but just, like, rules and regulations when it comes to it. Like, there should be a cap on how many children that you can have in your house, um, which there could be in some states. I mean, in my – and things could have changed from when I was in foster care. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, I remember at one point, like, my foster mom had, like, eight or nine foster kids. Clearly, like, we weren't getting the attention we needed like, um, I think that it's hard because I, I'm a big advocate for family reunification. I think that, you know, family preserve, like preservation of families is so important. Like you should be working with a biological mom to like do everything you possibly can to get her to be able to keep her children. That would, um, that would require a lot, a lot of resources, resources right? right? It would require so many resources. But you know what? Things will not change until they start paying social workers more. I agree. I agree. Because you have social <laughs> workers who work for, and I don't work for CPS, but I, I look at jobs all the time. I'm constantly like looking at jobs, master's degree level social workers with clinical licenses working in CPS in the area I live in, $60,000 a year. And it's like, I can't even imagine, say, like Mississippi, like you're probably making $32,000 a year. And that field is hard. And like, then you have turnover because people are like, I can't do this job. I'm not getting paid enough. I'm stressed out. I'm overworked. I'm mentally drained. And then you have emotionally turnover. Emotionally too, so, right? What's that? Emotionally, emotionally as well. Right? Oh, right? yeah. So when you have turnover like that and you have, you know, finally a client who who trusts their social worker and opens up to them. And then they're like, I'm leaving in two weeks. You're going to get a new worker. It's like now all of the progress we've made, I have to start all over. Right. And it's like, so until we start paying our, like our social workers more money for the work that they do, I feel like more progress could be made. I also think that policies need to be rewritten and changed. Um, I'm a huge, that's kind of like my ultimate career goal is why I live in DC area. I want to write policy, social work policy, but I truly think that you cannot write effective policy until you have worked in the field and know what needs to be changed. We have a bunch of politicians writing policy for things that they've never experienced or seen firsthand um, to know how systems work. And I think that that's a big thing that needs to be changed. Um, I just think that there's so many, there's so many things that need to happen um yeah yeah i agree, I agree. I, there's, there's definitely, definitely a, lot a lot of, of a lot of, a lot of there's a, there's a, there's, I, don't I don't know it's it's, it's a, a it's kind of it's kind of a crazy thing because there's so many things that, that need to be changed about it right, right? i mean i mean i think, I think there's, there's a huge problem with social workers, workers and, and maybe, maybe not necessarily being passionate about the job because you know it is a job and at the end of the day they have their own lives they want to go home and they want to go to their families whatever and so, and so I, I know with like my experience in the foster, in the foster care system, system, it didn't really seem like they cared too much about the, 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 the kids that they took care of as much as, you know, um, 
the, the, the foster, foster parents. parents. Like, like they, they tried, tried protecting, protecting foster, foster parents, parents more, I guess. You know, you know because, because they have they had, they a, real had a real shortage of them. Of them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's so many different things I believe that need to be changed, and I don't even know where it could start. Especially going back on like the. Um, are you familiar with, I can't really speak on it because I did not watch it because I can't bring myself to watch it, but the trial of Gabriel Hernandez. I watched, I watched part, part of it, it and it's so, so brutal. brutal. Like, it's, yeah. I can't watch so, it. So. I, the only reason why I have any interest in watching it is because of the social work aspect, because there were three social workers that were charged in that murder case as well. Um, which brings up a really good point of the reason why they were charged is because they were making false reports mm-hmm. saying they were seeing this child when he had been dead for weeks. And it's just like, yeah, they shouldn't have been falsifying reports, but you look at the amount of work and cases that those caseworkers have mm-hmm. to meet yeah. quotas, to get billing done. Yeah. And yeah. It's like there's no possible way that, you can see, you know, they they said that they had caseloads of up to like 75 to 100 children. Oh and it's like, I can't even imagine, you know, my caseload for work right now is like 15 clients. And then we yeah, like, that's a lot. once we hit 20, we, we start a wait list. Can you imagine like having to see if, if you have 75 to 100 children that you have to see and they're scattered across the county and you have to see each of them like once a week? you're working like 12 to 16 hour days and you're probably making $45,000 a year. Right. Right. So how does, so that, how does make that make you passionate about, about your job? How does that make you passionate about your job? When you're not making money, money, you know, you know, you're not, you're making, not making enough, enough money to survive, to survive yourself. How, how what's, what's the incentive, incentive at, that at that point? And then it just comes down to meeting quotas. Right. It's right. not, it's not doing anything to better the situation of the foster parent or the child. It's meeting quotas so that we can send in money, the the billing for, you know, whatever insurance company is paying for the social worker to go out there. And then they're falsifying reports saying, yeah, I saw this kid. The kid's fine. Meanwhile, the kid was locked in a cabinet for two weeks. I, I know the, I know social, the social worker. worker. I, don't really I don't really know her, her but I've, I've, talked, talked, I've talked, talked with her. And she, she said, said that one of her... her uh, uh, cons- one, of one of her biggest, biggest concerning things, things is that she, she so she works with children, children as well, and she said that she spends a lot of time in her office uh, filing, filing paperwork and filling out paperwork, and, paperwork and she could spend that time out in the field working with these these children, and that's a that's a huge concern of hers. You know that that's a lot of wasted time and resources. I think it also depends on how an agency is run. So. um Like I mentioned in the very beginning of this, my job is so flexible with how I do my work. So um, I, and I will admit, (laughs) I am really bad at paperwork and documentation. (laughs) It's not my strong suit. I'm more of like a, I like to be in the field talking to people. Um, So I've had to like work with my supervisor to like, Brittany, how are you going to get this stuff done when your notes are a month late? You know? So, um, we've like discussed back and forth on what works for me, which it helps if you have a flexible agency that will work with you because not everyone's style of working is the same. So for me, I work, I I try to do four days in the field and one day at home, straight paperwork, because then it's like, then I'm not going out in the field and then rushing back to get all my notes done. It's like, as long as I like remember what I'm doing and like, know what I talked about with certain clients. Mm -hmm. I can focus on being in the field and working with people directly and doing stuff I need to do with my clients and then spend one day doing all my paperwork. 
And that's, and the, that's most the most important thing, thing right? Doing, doing the, the field work because, because that's where you, you meet, meet your new, new, new clients. clients that's where you change, change lives. lives. Yeah. It's not, it's not necessarily, necessarily the paperwork. <laughs> no, but the paperwork is important for documentation when clients right. come back and say, well, Bernie said she was going to do this with me and she hasn't met with me. And it's like, well, I did. And I never said that because it's not in the note. <laughs> <laughs> what would, what you, would you, like you like to see changed in the field that you're currently working in? Um, huh. Man, I mean, I mean, obviously, obviously your the overall goal is to get, to get everybody housed. You don't want, you want anybody homeless. homeless. Yeah, um, but, but as far as, far as like maybe some legislation, um, maybe, maybe some, some federal, federal funding. funding what, would, what, would, what, would you, what would you like to see change? So I think that one of the main main issues, and I always get into this conversation with people when it comes to politics. Um, we really, really need to educate our police on mental health. Um, I have so many clients that I can't get housed over petty charges of urinating in public or loitering. And it's like the police need to understand that these individuals have nowhere else to go during COVID. Like they can't go into McDonald's and go to the bathroom. McDonald's is closed. Where else are they supposed to go to the bathroom if they are literally homeless? Why are you charging them with that? Um, and that's like a big issue. And I have pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed with my boss to let me work with our police force. And I finally, this, this year, like two months ago, she was like, you're going to be working, doing outreach with a cop. And I was like, thank oh, you. Wow. Like, thank you. We need that because I've come across some very nasty police officers where I work, where I ask them, like, have you seen anyone? And they're like, no, they don't want us to arrest them. So what else are we supposed to do? And I'm like, so I think that like, we need to see more education with our community members who are calling to complain about homeless individuals with our like partners with like the police force to like understand mental illness. And now we do have some police officers who are great, who understand, who are patient, who check in on these homeless individuals and are respected. But historically homeless individuals don't like the police because they are given fines things that like are stupid and then they can't pay them and then they get outstanding fines and then they get arrested for you know not paying and it's like a whole thing so I think that like that's one of the main things that's like pretty easy to change that should be focused on and changed because you know legislation can sit in the house for months and years before anything gets passed and then once it's passed how long does it take to execute it you know but on like a local level and just like across the board having stricter like education to how to work with these individuals connecting like police forces with the outreach teams and like knowing that like hey there's this homeless guy out here who's having a severe mental like crisis can you please send one of your outreach workers to help with the crisis like we know that the that the that the homeless individuals like the outreach workers because they give them stuff, you know, like maybe if we bring someone who like they know. And so I think that that's one of like the big things that if we could just work on getting that and that's like across the board, not even just where I live, but like every county in every state could like could work on that for sure. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, agree. Um, I know, I know in, in Michigan, where I am, obviously, obviously it's cold, cold here. here. It's, probably it's probably cold where you're at too. Oh, yeah. um, but, but our homeless, our homeless population, population has gone up and, and it's something I've, I've kind of noticed since COVID. COVID. It, it seems that there's, that there's more people, people out panhandling and, and 
Uh, there's, like, there's like an overpass, overpass kind, kind of, kind of like, like a few miles from my house, and, and there's like, there's like an apartment under, under, underneath the overpass, and I'm like, what the heck? Why, why isn't there like people from the government saying, hey, you can't do that? We need to take you and, and put you in, in a home or like some sort of shelter. Yeah, it's madness. It's, madness. it's crazy. It's crazy, it's crazy how, how how prevalent it is, and especially in all these big cities. Yeah. And I always try to explain to people like shelter is not for everyone. I do trainings um, for our county and, you know, people are like, well, why don't they just go to the homeless shelter? It's like if you're in recovery from drugs or alcohol and you're working really hard on your recovery and you know that going to a shelter, you're going to be tempted to use drugs or drink. You might not want to go to a shelter if you have severe PTSD and people yelling is going to trigger that. You might not want to go to a shelter. I met with a guy who was in prison for 48 years for like murder or something. And he got out and I was like, do you want to go to the shelter? And he was like, I lived in prison for 48 years. I do not want to be around anyone. I want to live (laughs) in my tent in the woods. And I was like, all right. You know, like everyone has their own reason for things. You can't pressure people into going anywhere. You just have to make sure that they have like the resources to stay warm. They know where to go if they decide that they do want to go. But like, People call and they're like, well, why are these people outside? Why are they not in shelter? And it's like, you can't force anyone to go anywhere. If they don't want to go, they don't want to go. And we just had an issue in DC where they cleared kind of like what you were saying under the underpass. Um, There was like a tent city, you know, a big community of homeless people. And they came in with a bulldozer and bulldozed the whole thing. And actually they didn't check the tents and there was a homeless guy in one of the tents and they bulldozed him. And he's going to get millions of dollars from the city because well, hopefully, hopefully he won't be homeless, be homeless after that. After that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like there has to, and when it comes down to it, like that, that situation made me so sad because it's like, that was those people's home. Like that's where, that's where they live. That was their community. And like, that was their stuff. Like they don't have a lot of stuff. So for you to treat it like it's garbage and just bulldoze it is like very upsetting because these people have nothing and what they do have is very little. And like, it's just blatant disrespect to do that. And it's just dehumanizing even more. So, so I guess, I guess as a counter argument, a lot of people would say, well, you're not supposed to do that, right? right? You're, not you're not supposed, supposed to, to camp outside, outside um, underneath, underneath an overpass or, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying, trying to think. Like, like in California, California they're having a huge problem with the homeless population as well. People taking over other people's, people's property, property or the like the beachfront beach yeah. um what, what could, could be, be done, done about that, that? Because, because i mean i mean affordable housing yeah yeah i, I guess, I guess that, would that would be, be the answer, access right? to resources not um all right so do you know how much social security is if you get social security do you know how much a month you get uh, uh no, no i don't i take a wild guess 600, 600 bucks a month, a month. 780. Oh, that's close. close. You are close. But can you imagine living on $780 a month? No, I, no, I couldn't. I couldn't, couldn't live, on, live on, that. on that. No one can live on that. And they're like, the government is like, here you go. And it's like, by the time that you buy food and you can probably rent a hotel room for four nights and then you're out of money for the rest of the month. So it's like, it's nearly impossible for people to save. And then it's like, they can only work part time because once you make over a certain amount of money, they cut off your benefits and it's like $780 isn't a lot, but like neither is a $600 paycheck every two weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're either going to make that money every two weeks. And then, you know, 
What if you miss transportation and you miss the bus and then you can't get to work and then you lose your income with social security and then you lose your job? Then what? Right. So, so many other factors that people just don't like to incorporate in because it doesn't fit their narrative of, well, they shouldn't be like asking for government assistance anyway. But if those people lost their jobs and lost their apartment and burned all of their bridges with their resources or lived in an area where they didn't know anyone, what else are you supposed to do? Yeah, and, you know, yeah. underpasses are safe from the elements. I mean, you might get some wind in there. But like the homeless community, they're a community. They know each other. They look out for each other. Like, so that was like, when that happened in DC, that was super upsetting to me. I was very angry about that. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily, necessarily the best, best approach to just come in with bulldozers and start bulldozing, yeah. especially without checking, right? right? I don't know. Make sure everybody's clear of the area. Send those people. Power. Wow. wow. Well, well, this has been, been a great, great episode, episode talking with you. Um, I, I feel like we can relate on so many different things. I, again, I was adopted in foster care like you, and I had found my family at a at a later age, kind of like you. I found my mom when I was 18 years old, and I was searching for her, and then I just kind of happened to stumble across family members when I found my dad, which is pretty cool. And it's kind of the same case in your with you right yeah 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 um so so what is your goals for the future um do you plan on working in the homeless field or do you plan on transitioning to a different field what what is your overall goal um so i plan to work probably direct service a couple more years like i said i really want to get into policy um i do live in dc so it's a it's a good chance I could try to get in um, to some congressman's office. <laughs> um, that's the ultimate goal. I would love to just write policy and work with anyone in the government. I'm really big into politics. I think that I'm very passionate about things and I could definitely, you know, I will argue with someone for hours about something. If I, <laughs> I had a conversation, I was like, man, I could never be on like a high, high, like jury case. <laughs> Oh, I would be like, they're not guilty or they're guilty. And I would just be that one person that would be like, I'm not changing my mind. You guys <laughs> no, you decide to come on. Like I, so I think that I have like the drive and the passion and like the energy for it. I just think that right now I'm going to continue direct service. Um, unless like a better opportunity comes along with more money, more money is always good, but I really do want to work and change policy change. That's like, I I think it's just really important to have people who know what's going on writing policy for the for the people that are underprivileged. I agree. I agree. And and, and people, people who have actually worked, worked in that field and gone through some of those things gives hope to people, people who are in those positions, positions right? right? Yeah. So, so. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for doing, doing this. It's, it's been, been an honor. honor. It's, been it's been a pleasure, pleasure talking, talking with you and, uh, and uh, I will, I will be sure to join that page. And, and again, what was it called? Adoptee Talks. Adoptee Talks on Instagram. On Instagram. And, then and then you also have a TikTok. TikTok. Can you plug that? that? Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's just Brittany Lara. Let me look. And then, and then are you on, on uh, Facebook, Facebook or Instagram? Instagram or do you, or do you not want to put that out there? Um, no, that's fine. So, oh, so my... Um, my TikTok is just Brittany Sanzo, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y-S-A-N-Z-O, one word. And then um, my Instagram handle is um, Z-O-S-A-N-B-21. 
again, I had to, I started having homeless clients finding me on Instagram. <laughs> and I was like, ah, I gotta, gotta change some stuff around. Okay. So, okay, you so do you not want me to put that, that on, on? You can, on. you can put that on the podcast. That's fine. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Well, All right, well thank you for doing this. this. It's been, it's yeah, been fun. And, uh, and uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah. Feel free to hit me up. All right. We'll All right, do. We'll do. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.